Chonkis. He's a noted Catholic liturgical theologian, a teacher of homiletics, composer of liturgical music. Ordained in 1980 for the Archdiocese of St. Paul at Minneapolis. I have tried on a few occasions to insert him into the religious life. <laughs> Um, he holds degrees in English from the then College of St. Thomas and in liturgical studies from the University of Notre Dame and the Pontificio Instituto Liturgico of the Ateneo San Anselmo in Rome. Wow. <laughs> he has served as a parochial vicar, a campus minister, and a parochial administrator. That's Pastor Currently, he is Associate Professor of Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, where recently he was named Artist in Residence and Fellow at St. Thomas Center for Catholic Studies. Father Jonkis has taught here at Notre Dame several times during both the summer session and in the regular school year. He has composed and arranged over 300 pieces of liturgical music. And in addition, he's the author of over 200 articles and several books. The title of his lecture this evening is Preaching and Singing God's Word, a Ministerial Partnership. Please join me in warmly welcoming Father Just when I expected him to extend his hands at the crest of the sun. 
sound and address the people with the Lord be with you. Instead, he said, Please hold your vigil candles directly vertically. Do not allow them to tilt to one side or the other, lest they drip wax upon the carpeting. That wax hardens around the carpet fibers. Extremely difficult for our janitorial staff to remove. The Lord be with you. I wanted to send a poison blow dart to that Perhaps you won't be surprised to hear that when clergy get together and have a few scotches, their conversation sometimes turns to their work with church musicians. For example, can you believe it? I'm trying to keep our Catholic school afloat, play, pay the diocesan assessment, get a good bid for the tuck pointing on our church, cajole some parishioners into serving on the pastoral council, Plan the three funerals I've got this week. Break the news to the pre-marriage couple that their inventory has raised some rather intense red flags. <laughs> Make sure that the catechumens get to the right of election on the first Sunday of Lent and prepare a barn burner of a Lenten homily. And my choir director wants a two-hour appointment with me to go over the chant I'm supposed to be singing for Lent. Apparently, since my Tessa Torah, whatever the hell that means, is off, and I'm not mentioning tone very well. I'm privileged to hear both kinds of conversations as a member of both tribes. Tonight's lecture gives me a chance to make a plea to preachers and to church musicians to forge a pledge, a covenant, partnership between your two tribes. We are all familiar with the structure of a brief from our Hebrew scripture study. Identification of the parties, recounting of their relationship, <laughs> statement of the pact, stipulations for maintaining the covenant, you like this? Yeah. Uh, calling on witnesses, blessings and curses, my favorite part, <laughs> and establishing the regular covenant renewals. Tonight, I would like simply to concentrate on one element, the stipulations, just as the mosaic brief associated with Sinai highlights the ten davrim, the ten words, we call the ten commandments. I am presenting tonight the ten guidelines, right? I'd offer them for a ministerial partnership between preachers and church musicians. There may be many other stipulations that could be of use, but I think these might at least get some intertribal conversations going. Notice, by the way, I'm assuming this is a parity treaty where the parties are equal, not a suzerainty treaty, where one makes or dictates the stipulations to the other. Okay. Just as I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me, is the first of the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant, and contextualizes all of the others. So coordinating material, ministerial plans for each liturgy is the fundamental stipulation for this pact. One would think that this commitment should be obvious, right? But I have been shocked at how often clergy and church musicians do their planning from the same sets of ritual and biblical texts, but do not coordinate their efforts. During the actual celebration, the musician might become aware that the focus of the chosen liturgical song slips by, or actually obstructs the meaning of the preacher. 
And the preacher might become aware that the message might have been even more richly proclaimed if only the sung texts had been a resource. So I'd offer the following three points as a structure for fleshing out this first guideline. Make sure that you are in agreement about what liturgy you're celebrating. <laughs> for example, I was delighted, honestly, to be asked weeks ago about the focus of the Mass we celebrated earlier today. Would we be celebrating Friday of the fourth week of ordinary time, or would we be celebrating one of two optional memorials for today, Jerome Emiliani or Josephine Bakita? It's wonderful, you asked, right? The scriptural readings would have been the same, but the context in which the readings would have been proclaimed would really have varied. I responded by saying that I prefer to stick with the burial celebration, unless in the judgment of the planners here, celebrating either of the appointed saints would be of special import to this community. And they said no. So needless to say, it becomes crucially important for both preachers and musicians to know whatever additions from catechumenal dismissals through a separate children's liturgy of the word, to special blessings for engaged married couples on anniversaries, etc., that might influence a given weekend's Eucharist. One would think that it would be easy then to determine what scriptural texts will be proclaimed simply by consulting the Ordo. However, sometimes completely different sets of readings for the same celebration might be proposed, as when year A readings might substitute for years B and C on the third, fourth, and fifth Sundays of Lent. Even more frequently, musicians might choose a common antiphon or psalm rather than the proper antiphon and psalm appointed in the Liturgy of the Word. I'll be celebrating Mass at 9.45 on Sunday at St. Mary's, and they sent me an email two weeks ago that the planners there have decided to use the common Psalm 100 rather than the appointed Psalm this Sunday. That really helped because I was originally planning to preach on the appointed Psalm. That's great. Now this new one, agree on the liturgical texts being proclaimed, clearly relates to the earlier point. The focus here is on knowing which options, options will be chosen for the variety of liturgical texts. If, for example, the penitential act is the confiere, it will be followed by a simple chant of the Lord have mercy, not the troped form. If the preacher intended to preach on the epithets contained in the troped form of the Lord have mercy, the church musician in this case would frustrate his designs. Even though preachers may not complete their homiletic preparation, and church musicians may not finalize their programs until the very day of the celebration, sharing the focus and suggesting ways in which the music might support the preaching early in the process would enrich both ministries. Simple? Okay. Guideline number two, do not violate conscience. It's a big thing. Fortunately, I think preachers and church musicians rarely violate each other's conscience in serving the same liturgy. Much more common are disputes arising from taste. But I have been in situations where the choices made by preacher or church musician cause difficult issues of conscience for the other. I'll give two examples from my own experience. The first occurred when I was taking some time off from my seminary studies and was working as a liturgy music director at a northwestern suburb of Minneapolis. 
One day, a visiting priest informed me, 10 minutes before the Mass was scheduled to begin, that he wanted to change the opening hymn to the Battle Hymn of the Republic. The music program had been set nearly two months before and rehearsed with cantors, choir, and instrumentalists for the past three weeks, and the participation aids had all been printed up. I told him that if he ordered me to do so, I would, but I would like to know why he wanted that hymn to be sung, since, as far as I could tell, it didn't relate to the day's biblical or liturgical texts. He told me, so I can chide the congregation for singing a song that distorts our image of God. Oh, God. This warlike, militaristic God trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored should have no place in the spirituality of Christians. So I make them sing it to tell them they're wrong. <laughs> Clearly, his idea of the purpose of liturgical music and mine were really in conflict. <coughs> the second occurred some years after my ordination when I was invited to preside and preach at a school mass, mostly populated by high school students. The music minister informed me that she had prepared the glee club to sing from a distance during the preparation and presentation of the gifts. I wanted to ask how the text, God is watching us, God is watching us, God is watching us from a distance, in which the deity relates to humanity much as a disinterested scientist would observe the bacterial scum on a petri dish. <laughs> How that relates to the Christian concept of a God who so radically loved us that he became human and died in our stead. So it would seem to me that preachers and church musicians should welcome the chance to think through together their understanding of the Christian mysteries so that no one's conscience is violated. Guideline three. Appreciate the music of language. The third guideline directs both preachers and church musicians to appreciate the music of spoken language itself. Spoken language, when it is well-crafted, employs many of music's characteristics, including rhythm, sound rhyme, phrase repetition, and determined register. Attention to the musical elements of spoken language should help both preachers and church musicians hone their crafts. In part four of De Doctrina Christiana, Augustine of Hippo instructed Christian preachers to cultivate three styles of oratory, subdued, temperate, and majestic, to teach, delight, and move those to whom they spoke. The choice of style was based on the audience address and the subject matter treated. Minor topics should be treated in subdued style, mid-range topics in temperate style, and great topics in majestic style. Although Augustine believed that properly speaking, there are no minor topics in Christian preaching. <laughs> For the contemporary preacher, one might adapt Augustine's insights to say that necessary information should be delivered in a clear and accurate way to teach and delight the mind, but that more artistic styles are needed to teach and move the emotions and will. Thus, preachers turn to masters of artistic spoken language in drama and in poetry to cultivate an instinct for precisely the mot juste and the telling turn of phrase that will make the message memorable. Game. 
I'd now like to show how a preacher might come to appreciate the music of language by engaging a short poem by the English metaphysical poet George Herbert. His Love Free is a tour de force of basic vocabulary combined with exquisite attention to sound patterns to convey a profoundly moving spiritual truth. Dean, love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be here. I, the unkind, ungrateful? Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit. At the very least, a preacher could examine the following techniques to improve the music of his spoken language, or hers. Organizing accentual pulses in each stanza, organizing sound rhyme, the use of personification, an unnamed narrator and love, here to be understood probably as God or Christ, and magnificently uh, operating, making concrete and vivid an abstract theological concept the appropriation of grace. The use of dialogue to show pro progress of thought in describing the stages of spiritual intimacy. The use of common vocabulary with the exception of the word doth, which would have been common vocabulary when that poem was written. Every single word is common English. A concentration on monosyllabic syllabic communication. Stanzas one and two have a single three-syllable word and a sprinkling of two-syllable words, but stanza three is entirely monosyllables. It's telling us about how it slows down. Contrasting epithets, quick-eyed love versus the unkind, ungrateful soul. Consonants. Why does the hissing sounds of my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin? Why does that hit us the way it does? And assonance. If preachers cannot tell the difference between formulating love's question as, what other being is capable and in fact did create your visual capacity, versus, who made the eyes but I? You can't tell the difference between those. You have no idea what the music of language is. Okay. Although this third guideline has been addressed mostly to preachers, <coughs> church musicians should also be attentive to how a musical setting may or may not support the communicative potential of a liturgical text. 
concerns about individual word choices, terabinth is not an easy word to sing. Neither, frankly, is sanctuary. Not an easy word to sing. Alliteration and assonance. Have you actually really tried to sing, so my soul sings songs to you unceasingly? You're the problem with that, right? And especially word accent. This is a tough one. My good friend David Haas wrote this, and we've been in dialogue about this for a long time. <laughs> but the issue is word accent. We are called to act for justice. We are called to love tender. No. You gotta choose. You gotta choose. Either you're gonna accent to act and then have to love, or you're gonna follow speech rhythm and go to act. A lot. You see the issue. Right? So musicians. <laughs> Guideline four: Help music illuminate event. The fourth stipulation for covenant between preachers and church musicians is to allow music to illuminate the liturgical text, whether in text or in action. Preachers, by definition, should be especially attentive to linguistic values, and in many cases, volunteer. That's brother mine. <laughs> Help musicians appreciate the communicative potential of language. Yep. Saving church musicians from concentrating so much on the production of beautiful tones that the meaning of what they're singing fades. But musicians in partnership with creatures could help them recognize the limits of linguistic communication and invite them to experience the surplus of meaning brought to events by music. It may help preachers, as well as other members of the worshiping assembly, experience genuine transcendence. So I'd like to illustrate this in two ways. One involving music, illuminating a text, and the other an act of pure music. But I've got to come to do this. And I'm hoping that the sound system works with us. That text that we just examined, we're about to hear. We're hearing it from William Sack. We're also hearing it with Sir Thomas Allen singing. So sit back and let this be an experience.
having the text declaimed by a single baritone voice, consider how different the composition would be if it were set for two solo voices, the narrator and love, or for chorus, just one voice, deploying various instrumental colors to heighten the meanings of particular lines, the contrast between the melancholy woodlands and the radiant strengths, illustrating the progress of the conflict through changes in volume and the thickness of the accompaniment, changing the stanzaic structure. Honestly, the, the beginning of the poem through the fourth line of the third stanza is all treated musically as one thing, and then the final couplet is treated as its own separate statement musically, assigning a deceptive cadence to the final word, so I did sit and eat. And you think he's going to end there on a major chord, but he doesn't. It's a minor chord. And thus the music has to go on. Introducing that wordless chorus, singing a chant line in octaves. It's a chant line of communion. So that Eucharistic communion is being sent into our brains subtly while this text is going forward. And then finally, that lengthy coda instrumental where the wordless chant as a symbol of liturgical worship gives way to the ascending instrumental lines with finally just two notes hanging in the stratosphere. Heaven, love, and the mirror. So you get the sense music can do something with language. My second example comes from an experience I had while worshiping with the monastic communities of Jerusalem in the Church of Saint-Gervais in Paris. The custom for this joint male and female monastic community is to sing the liturgical texts a cappella, antiphons usually in SATV, and verses in unison chant lines, although they actually employ a rather wide variety of possible tonal structures. Rather than accompanying the singing, the organ makes its own contributions. It never accompanies singing, it only plays separately. So, there am I on the solemnity of the Holy Trinity. During the Liturgy of the Word, after the reader had proclaimed the first reading slowly and clearly in French, and we had sung the responsorial song, a cappella, according to four-part refrain, schemes in line, I then presumed that the New Testament reading would begin, right? The reader would get up and read it. No, I was pleasantly surprised to discover that the community took a significant amount of time, around three minutes, just in silence, to ponder the reading. Nice. And I was ready for the New Testament reading to come. But what deeply surprised me is that out of the meditative silence, the organ played for five minutes. It played a three-part invention. I suddenly realized the organ, in pure sound, was making a theological commentary on the Feast of the Trinity, where each separate line of music creating one music was a mirror of the three persons in a perichoresis creating one Godhead. So, yes, even wordless music can end up bringing us into the transcendent. Okay. Next part, I guess.
Are we on examine musical forms to start your preaching? Good, okay. Our fifth guideline considers another way in which church musicians may be helpful to preachers. With the exception of aleatory pieces, musical compositions exhibit a certain formal structures based on three principles. Exact repetition, repetition with variations, or contrast. I'm about to skip all of that part. Uh, and I'm going to move now to the main part. A litany is a call and response form deeply ingrained in oral culture. Here, varying individual statements elicit the same verbal response. I hope some of you remember this. Santa Michele, Santa Lucia, It worked perfectly fine until you got a plural. Omnes Angeli, Orate. You had to change because the verb was not plural. And it was wonderful because you just had this call-response pattern like that. And you didn't have to worry even about the text so much. Santa Pizzeria, Santa Lasagna. Okay. That technique, that call-response technique, can actually be rather powerfully engaged by the preachers. This is characteristic of African-American preaching, for example, where certain interjections in the preaching really take place. I once actually heard an Anglo sermon, however, in which the preacher gave the phrase, it feels like Friday, but Sunday's going to come. Right? It feels like Friday, but Sunday's going to come. And a whole series of individual exemplars then of things that were happening in the parish. Addiction. It feels like, fr like Friday, but Sunday's going to come. Uh, uh, alcoholism, etc. All of those are named Gradually, the people are more and more engaged in the preaching because they're affirming that litanic response. So litany could be a way of preaching. Again, theme and variation form revels in repetition with variation for its structural intelligibility. Preaching in theme and variation mode might extract a central message from a particular text and then present a multitude of examples of how that scriptural truth plays out in a variety of human situations. For example, a preacher might explore sin as rule-breaking by offering a variety of examples from scripture, history, literature, pastoral practice, and personal experience. Personally, I love that one. Um, uh, sin as a deliberate flouting of appropriately established commandments. In each case, the preacher would also show how grace repairs the consequences of such rule-breaking. Rondo form, Dean, is a, a, a term taken from the Italian word for wheel, is a musical structure in which a central theme regularly recurs after one or more episodes of contrasting material. An example of its use to structure a homily could be in the declaration that God manifests God's greatness by forgiving sins. That's what you come back to over and over and over again. But meanwhile, you do some theme variations. Sin as rule-breaking, sin as guilt and shame-inducing, sin as religious mystery. Those are all different. But after each of them, you hear the refrain, God's grace conquers sin, no matter what form. It's a rondo. If nothing else, exploring formal musical structures as frameworks to construct a homily may save the preacher from the dreaded He's coming in for a landing. No, he's off again. Oh, he's coming in for a landing. No, he's off again. 
inspired by chanted presidential texts. The next three guidelines are all connected. They suggest that preachers might be inspired in their liturgical preaching by chants sung during the liturgy. Both the general instruction of the Roman Missal and the introduction of the lectionary for Mass note that three broad sources of inspiration for a homily are the biblical texts proclaimed, the liturgical texts and rites celebrated, or the person or feast commemorated. So guideline 6D states that preachers may base their homiletic reflections on the presidential chants done during the liturgy. Two broad groups, minor eucology, see listed short prayer texts like Collect Prayer of the Offerings Post and Union Prayer, and major eucology, such as the variable Eucharistic prayers, invariant uh, prefaces, invariant Eucharistic prayers or song of blessings, like the blessing of baptismal water. Take that as the source for your preaching. Now, consider the richness of the teaching contained in the preface for the Most Holy Eucharistic Prayer. And I'm only going to give you body of this, not the protocol and the eschatical. Just look at what's being proclaimed in the chant. Ping. For at the last supper with his apostles, establishing for ages to come the saving memorial of the cross, Christ offered himself to you as the unblemished lamb, the acceptable gift of perfect praise. Ping. Nourishing your faithful by the sacred mystery of God, our Father, you made them holy so that the human race bounded by one world may be enlightened by one faith and united in one bond of charity. And so we approach the table of this wondrous sacrament so that bathed in the sweetness of your grace, we may pass over into the heavenly realities here foreshadowed. That's stunning. It's just stunning. Incredibly dense theology. While this preface could perfectly support a homiletic reflection Thomas Aquinas is teaching that the Eucharist is a memorial of past saving events, a present encounter with grace, and the pledge of future glory, it could also inspire each paragraph generating its own homily, right? The first on liturgical and the amnesis, exploring the relationship of the Last Supper to the Mass. The second on the communal fruits of communion. See, we talk so much about individual fruits of communion. Here the text says it's communal holiness and faith and charity in the body. And finally, the third, on the eschatological character of Eucharistic communion. Ding. Preaching inspired by communal liturgical songs. The invocation of the Trochikirie. Ding. The epithets for God the Father and God the Son and the glory and excelsis. The doxological cries of the Sanctus. The great advantage here is that the assembly has already impressed these texts in their memories through song. And like St. Paul quoting early Christian hymns in his letters and then making his doctrinal points, here the homilist can quote what the community already has by heart in its song and extending. Ding. Even less frequently sung communal liturgical songs, such as the Easter sequence, the Victime Pascali Laudes, or the Laudes Zion Salvatorum, the sequence of Corpus Christi, could enrich these homilies. As fate or providence would have it, the text appointed for Sunday, the one I'm going to be preaching on, Herbs <coughs> and Mary's, is Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. I'm sure you catch immediately. That's Isaiah's 
temple vision in which Yahweh Sabaoth has the seraphim, the fiery angels, right, crying out one to another, Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy. I wonder how many assemblies the priest is going to be able to, or the or deacon, is going to be able to look at that text and connect the Isaiah reading with the Sanctus that we'll sing later in the Mass. It's a perfect opportunity. Dean, guideline number eight imports a liturgical practice begun in Lutheran churches as an enrichment to the Roman Rite. The hymn of the day is a congregational hymn centered on the lectionary readings appointed for a particular liturgy. <coughs> originally generated as a congregational reclaiming of the choral gradual sung after the epistle, the hymn of the day normally appears as part of the liturgy of the word, either sung before or after the sermon, sometimes in relation to the recitation of the creed. Placing the hymn of the day after the proclamation of all the scripture readings and the sermon allows the congregation to internalize and claim the read and preached word of God in a full, conscious, and active form. There is no provision in the present order of Mass for the Roman Rite for the hymn of the day. But since, according to the general instruction of the Roman Missal, one of the functions of the opening liturgical song is to lead the thoughts of the faithful to the feast or season being celebrated, a hymn of the day might appropriately be sung as part of the introductory rites. So, since this practice might be unfamiliar to Roman Catholics, I'm going to do it with you. This is a hymn of the day that I wrote specifically for the second Sunday of Advent, year C. And you're going to sing it with me. You're going to see that four of these verses I used at Mass today. But now, here we've got it in Advent time. We're looking very specifically at the readings that were associated with that day, Baruch and Psalm 126. But the question that's being asked from the Gospel, all the same. So I think you'll know when to when to and I won't have to say game. And we're gonna use Jesu Dulcis Memoria as the as the uh, chant for this. What would it cost to follow John from Harvard to a Jordan Sea?
reactionary text and also an engagement creature. Okay? And I'm going to skip a bunch more and now ding to the next. We're almost at the end. Guideline number nine. Evaluate regularly and systematically. Our penultimate guideline suggests that preachers and church musicians should commit themselves to evaluative processes both alone and together. While every worshiping community will exhibit different demands, it might be helpful to aim at three evaluations per year. One reviewing Advent Christmas tide, one reviewing Lent Tree on Easter tide, and one reviewing Ordinary time. Preachers might want to gather data from other preaching professionals, those with interest and formation in liturgical, theological, and biblical fields, like your co-workers, the other members of the parish staff, for example, and a representative sampling by ages of those without special permission who are stuck hearing your preaching. Musicians, in turn, may look at similar sources, other church music professionals, those with some liturgical, musical, theological training, like your cantors, your church members, your instrumentalists, and then a representative sampling of those in the pews who Sunday after Sunday receive your ministry. It would seem helpful to gather, after these individual evaluations have been done, as preachers and church musicians to evaluate how these ministries have coordinated their service. And I think, personally, you could use the last eight guidelines as a way to do your evaluation. Kind of simple systematic form. Okay, Dane, last one, guideline 10. Nurture ministerial spirituality. It would seem important that both preachers and church musicians explicitly develop their spiritual lives. Without regular grounding in the life of prayer, preaching becomes hollow. Preachers can mistake their own pet projects or peeves for the Word of God, can cast themselves in the role of prophets when they simply are working out authority issues, or can shy away from challenging their communities in God's name because of fears of not being liked. Church musicians can lose sight of their call to assist their communities to worship God in song and seek rather to entertain board assembly members, to stir up political ideologies, or to simply offer aesthetic delight, all driven by an ego need to perform for applause rather than to make music for the glory of God and the sanctification of the faithful. I suggest three strategies that may nurture both preachers and church musicians and keep their partnership flourishing. First, I believe that preachers and church musicians must commit themselves to continuing professional development. That means knowing the official documents through and through at your fingertips. For preachers, the introduction of a lectionary for Mass and the USCCD's documents fulfilling your hearing and preaching ministry of faith. For church musicians, the USCCB Sing to the Lord Music and Divine Worship. For both the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy, the General Instruction of the Roman Missal, and of the Liturgy of the Hours, and the various introductions to the sacramental rites. It also means keeping up with developments in the field through journal reading, internet sites, probably even taking online or in-person courses, postdoc. And this kind of ongoing professional development may seem like a luxury in the light of the many demands on ministers' time. But without it, ministerial activity becomes increasingly unimportant. Dean. Second, 
I believe both preachers and church musicians would benefit from spiritual direction. Having a wise companion in a spiritual life who can encourage us in times of dryness and unmask our illusions is certainly a desideratum, if not a necessity. Being. And finally, I believe that both preachers and church musicians must find times for worship when they are not leading the assembly in its common prayer. They gotta sit in view. Preachers need to hear other preachers, if not always to emulate best practices, at least to avoid Pavlov. Right? If you're offended by the preaching, learn from that. Musicians need to experience other music ministers and ministries, if not to gain new repertoire and techniques, at least to avoid misforming the assembly's prayer. Hi, it's communion. Communion's all about love. I love you. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you, and I really love my girlfriend. And my favorite song to sing to her is, Suzanne takes me down to the place where I live. Okay, you got it. I think that scheduling a yearly retreat guarantees that both preachers and church musicians are ministering to, at least occasionally. Of course, all this presumes an ongoing personal prayer life from both preachers and church musicians. Without regular direct encounter with the Lord, no ministerial, ministerial spirituality is possible. So, I conclude. Let this be a statement of my joy in being invited to address you, my delight in sharing these ministries with you, and my prayer for your future service to Christ and His Church. It's from the Shakers. Gospel kindred, how I love thee, tongue nor pen can never say, the very feelings of affection growing stronger day by day. Together we travel with the gospel and bow down to what is true and tell the world that Christ our Savior is free.